us okay. first discourse or a sermon. And it's interesting because about Thank you so much. back in 2008 or 2009, I'm not sure, it was a long time ago, I went, um, I, I had the privilege to hear a sermon that was presented at the ASI convention, and the preacher was David Asheret. He is one of my favorite preachers. He's amazing. He he's used to run a theological school, and now he's a pastor in, I think he's in Australia, somewhere. He's an amazing preacher. And um, when I heard his sermon, it was about an hour and a half long. He, he preaches long. He preaches long, long sermons. But his topic was one that helped me to realize how important it is, not just to read the Bible, just to read it, but also to go into what it meant in those days. One of the things that really, really um, shocked me was the Beatitudes. How many times we have read Beatitudes? The very nice, very so, oh, that's so sweet, so nice. We have pictures with the Beatitudes. We have um, all kind of nice decorations with the Beatitudes. And I grew up, you know, like everybody else, reading the Beatitudes, and it was such a meaningful <coughs> sermon. But when he preached about this one, uh, it really, it really opened my eyes that we are not studying the Bible the way it should be. So I'm going. I'm not. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to preach about an hour and a half, which is hopefully about 30 minutes. I'm just going to get the essence of that sermon. And I pray, it is my prayer, that you listen and you hear um, the importance of when you're reading any part of the Bible, to know where it comes from, when it was said, when it was written, and what was the cultural in that day. <clears throat> because many times, or most of the times, when a preacher says something, is very related to the culture of that time. And if you don't put that text within the context of a set, you might, you might misinterpret it. So today we're going to be reading about Jesus' first sermon. And um, if you don't mind, let's stop for a few minutes and let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, for all your blessings. We thank you that we live in an era that we have your words and we can read it freely and we can study it. And there's so much information out there that years back we didn't. We want to thank you, O Lord, for all so many blessings. And the time that you took to share all these wonderful words, words to help us to have not only a, a better life here, but also to prepare us for a better life. We ask that the Holy Spirit be here and speak on my behalf, O Lord. Because I don't know how to preach. And honestly, I would like for you to share what you want to share with everyone. And may the Holy Spirit help everyone 
to understand what you want them to understand. Okay, so the first, the first thing uh, that we're going to be talking about is his first, Jesus' first sermon. It was interesting that it happened um, in, a, in, a, in a week of Passover. The first time that actually Jesus Christ stood up to begin his ministry, he was during Passover. And when you read the Bible throughout the biggest events on the New Testament, on the Gospels, if you really look at when he preached, or when he shared, or when he did the most of the miracles, most of his miracles happened during Passover week. In those three, three Passover weeks of this, in the last three and a half years of his life. And if you can imagine, um, Jesus Christ when he was growing up in Nazareth, when he turned 12, as it was a costume, he went to Jerusalem for his first Passover. And when he went to the temple, and as he was walking towards this important event in his life, because um, in the Jewish culture, when a boy becomes 12 years of age, is considered an adult, and he, that's when they start treating him as, as an adult. And that's when they are allowed to go to his first Passover at the Jerusalem. So I can only imagine when Jesus went, and while he was walking into, not in the church, but he was walking towards, well, well, he was walking toward the church, the synagogue, and looked aside and looked at the sanctuary when they were doing the sacrificial lamb. And I can only imagine what went through his mind. When he was walking towards the synagogue, to the church, he looked and see the lambs being slain for the sins. That's when he realized his mission. That's when he realized what he's there for. That's when he realized that he is, or he will be, that man that will die for our sins. And when, they, when he went back, we know because of the Bible that he started his ministry around 30 years of age. So between 12 years of age and 20, I mean 30, it's about 20 years, right? So we can imagine Jesus, while he was working in his father's carpentry, he was a carpenter, for 20 years, he was preparing his first sermon. For 20 years, while he was measuring, while he was cutting, while he was building wooden materials, in his mind was going preparing, preparing for what is going to be his first sermon, his first dissertation. The first time that he's going to stood up and stand up, stand up with the public and tell them who he is and why he's there. So when he got up in Matthew to, to preach his first sermon, he, he was preparing that sermon for about 20 years. He didn't, he didn't just got up and, and came whatever came to his mind. He was very intentional. So as we go and remember that Christ was very intentional on that sermon and he had 20 years to prepare, 
Let's review a few things. When Matthew writes, in his, when Matthew wrote his book, he wrote it for the Jews. Everything that he wrote in, in, the, in the book of Matthew, it was geared for the Jews. He wanted to show that Jesus was the Messiah. And the way he, he started the book, it was very interesting. When he started the book, he divided it in a very different place. This is um, Nazareth, um, this is Galilee. It's a very beautiful lake. Um, and also the synagogues in those days were very also beautiful. And it was one of the things that I had the privilege to live in, the, in Jerusalem, you know, in, in Nazareth for a year. And I had the privilege to go to the Sea of Galilee many times. And also to Jerusalem almost every weekend. But um, it was a beautiful place. But let me, let me do an outline of very quickly how Matthew started his books to show that Christ was the Messiah. He did a comparison between the Israelites and Jesus. So if you look at, at the pictures, the first column on the top is the history of the timeline of the Israelites. And in the bottom, we have Jesus. So he did a comparison. The Israelites went to Egypt. So that, uh, I mean, Joseph had a vision. The same thing that Joseph, Jesus' father, had a vision. The angel told Joseph that not to leave Mary because the baby that Mary was carrying was holy. It was a son of God. Then we have the history of, of the Egyptians, of the Israel, Israel in the, with the Egyptians. They went to Egypt as a slave. First they went as a savior, but they ended up being slaves after many years. The same thing with Jesus. When he was born, if you remember the story, you know, because of um, the king, uh, the, the king trying to kill him, they have to flee to Egypt. Then as the Israelites were delivered and leave Egypt, the same thing with Jesus. So in the first two chapters, we can see that comparison. Matthew goes and tries to compare the Israelite journey with Jesus' life. When we go into Matthew, third, Matthew 3, then that is a, uh, he's talking about the wandering in the desert. When the Israelite, um, I'm sorry, um, in Matthew 3, we talk about the baptism. When Jesus went to baptize, to get baptized, the same way as the Israelites crossed the, 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 the Red Sea. And then by the time we go to Matthew 4, then we read how after Jesus got baptized, he, the Spirit took him to the desert for 40 days. The same way as the Israelites that wandered in the desert for about 40 years. And then after wandering the desert for 40 years, they go to King to go to Sinai. And what happened in Sinai? On the on the with the Israelites. God gave them the Ten Commandments, the law. The Sinai mountain was the place where Jesus where God gave to the Israelites the Ten Commandments, God's character. At the same time, in the same way, 
and Matthew 5 through 7 is the new Sinai that when Jesus Christ stands in that mountain in the Sea of Galilee to preach his first sermon in the beginning of his ministry. So before we go anywhere, before even we touch that, let's see what kind of people were there in Jesus' time. Because when he preached, you need to know the context, the historical context of his sermon. Because if not, then how do we know um, what he was trying to say? So going back to the contextual background of that time, we can say, we can have four different things that we need to keep in mind. The first one is, um, during that mountain was during Passover, and a lot of people from all over the world at that time, they used to go to Jerusalem. So you can imagine a lot of people coming from far away, trying to catch up with the news, trying to catch up with gossip, trying to catch up with what's going on in the last 12 months. And you can imagine the stories that the people start hearing. You know what, there's a new rabbi. And I heard that he went to a wedding and changed water to wine. And some of the people were saying, no, 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 I was there, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. This rabbi changed water into wine. All this going around. And then other ones that you know, but I heard that when he got baptized, there's a dove that came from heaven. And then other people were saying, no, 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 but I heard thunder as well. And other ones were saying, I was there, and I heard a voice coming from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. So if you can imagine during that week of Passover, there was a lot of gossiping, a lot of stories, a lot of excitements of this new rabbi. So on that mountain, I can imagine they were just chit-chatting and sharing all this miracle, all these this events and, and account that people heard it, all the people witnessed it, and everybody was like, like bees around those witnesses hearing what this rabbi have done in the past. Also, when Jesus got up to talk with that multitude, the Bible said when he was around 30 years of age. In our, in our time, 30 years of age is an adult. I mean, he was big. But in those days, a 30-year-old, he was considered as a child. He was very young. He was not taken seriously. So you can imagine when this young rabbi gets up, there's a lot of preconceived ideas. Some people would say, oh, you know, those, you know, people tend to have this personal discriminatory biases. When you see something, imagine if in here will help come a five-year-old telling you what to do. You have those discriminatory biases that come automatically that you grew up with, you're taught with in our culture. Imagine in those days, a young rabbi, very young, of which at that point, people were not taking him seriously. And on top of that, he was homeschooled. He did not went to a formal theological training. So you have this child getting ready to talk with no education whatsoever. 
So you can imagine all this preconceived expectations on it. Also, we have other preconceived um, expectations because he was considered a rabbi. There was expecting for him to talk about the law of Moses, the significance and the applications of it, because that's what the rabbi used to do. They were talking, they, they were doctors of the law. On top of that, you have people trying to, you know what we do today when someone speaks, you want to put them in a box. Like, where, which box are you talking to? Now, in those days, there were many, many boxes, um, cultural, religious boxes in those days. But we're only going to be talking about four, of which they were the most the most um, common in those days. And before I show you what those four were, let me read to you a commentary. This review uh, those are four boxes of type of philosophies. According to Victor L. Lolo, an assistant professor of ancient scriptures at Brigham Young University in, in Utah, this is what he wrote. So he, he wrote in regard to those four boxes. When someone says he belongs to a certain group of people, such as the Republican Party, the Trimstrom Union, or the Lions Club, it is usually easy to identify with that person's characteristics common to those associations. We would probably also recognize that he could belong to a number of groups without any serious conflict of interest. This process of learning about people by their association is also valid in our study of people who live during Jesus time. But the group we have the Zealots, the Sadducees, the Republicans, the Essenists, probably don't mean as much to us as if we would talk about Democrats, Republicans, Catholics, or Communists. You know, you see, for us, when we talk about the Zealots and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, it's not a big deal. But if we talk about Republicans or Democrats, oh, we know exactly how that works, right? We know who they are, what they believe into, and things like that. The sects that developed were usually not just political or just religious or just social in nature, but often encompasses aspects of a variety of philosophies. So in this, In top of all these personal biases that people have, there were four groups that people were expecting, just waiting for Jesus to open his mouth and say something to put him in the box. So in those 20 years that Jesus was preparing for this moment, he was very intentional to make sure that whatever he said it was outside of any of those boxes. So let's let's review what are those four huge boxes. We have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were an aristocratic, priestly class of Jews, influential in the temple of the Sanhedrin, the secular religious leaders, or in our time, the liberals. The ones to be more of the world. Their strength was in their control of the temple. And when it was destroyed, 
they cease to exist as a viable political or religious force among the Jews. The Pharisees. The Pharisees was a large sect in those days. It had about 6,000 of them in those days. They observed the Jewish rituals and studied the Torah and the oral law. They were the theologians of that time. They are the ones that follow the law to the T. The Pharisees became scholars of the law, fostering the synagogues as a place of study, worship, and prayer. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee and was taught by one of the most eminent Pharisees in those days, was Gabriel of Jerusalem, or Gamaliel from Jerusalem. We have the Essenists. The Essenists, we don't hear that too, many, too much in Jesus' time because they're the one who were outside, outside of the city, outside of any political or anything. They were hiding in the mountains. Today will be something similar to those that they go into monasteries. They don't want to deal with people. They just go into a very quiet place to study all their life on the laws. The last one is the zealots. The zealots, Peter was a zealot. He was a zealot. The zealots were a group of Jewish nationalists who strongly opposed Roman rules. They were the militia. They were the guerrilla warfare the radical religious fanatic, fanatics. But the zealots were the one that was always there trying to rattle cages, trying, always trying to push people to rebel against the government. And, and it's interesting that Peter was one of them. So when we read, um, so now that we know the background of who Jesus was talking to, or was going to talk to, we know that if we compare that in today's days, we do the same thing. We have our own personal discriminatory biases. We have our own preconceived ideas. We have our own way of filtering what we hear based on what we see and what, we, and what they do. It was the same thing in Jesus' time. So when Jesus opened his mouth and preached his first sermon, he was very intentional to make sure he was not going to be put in any of those boxes. But we're not going to spend time on reading the Beatitudes because we all know about them. Let's review about what happened. What was the people's reaction to his sermon? In Matthew 7, 28 and 29, you want to go there, when he finished his discourse, let's hear what the audience said about his sermon. When Jesus finished saying these things, the people of the crowd were amazed at his teaching. Because he did not teach like their teachers of the law, or the scribes. He taught like persons who have authority. But going more into the depth of what that means, in verse 28, when people were amazed, what other words can we use instead of, uh, instead of amazed? Astonished, what else? They were surprised. It was radical, right? It was revolutionary. It was something that they had never 
her before her. It was something out of the world, of his world. It's very interesting um, that when we read the Beatitudes and, uh, and everything that he taught, when he said, you know, you have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. That shows the authority. And when we talked about the Beatitudes, when he finished, everybody was like, I can imagine when he finished, everybody was like, stunned. And like, what just happened? So we hear what the Bible said about the, uh, the outside of the people after the sermon, but let's read about other people in our days, what they think about that sermon. Pastor Ashwick, he's a co-founder of the Rice Institute, that's what I heard um, his, his lecture. He's currently the, uh, the Kids Clip Seventh-day Adventist Church in um, New South Wales, Australia. His statement about this sermon said Jesus set himself up in a radical, revolutionary, and revelatory way. Let's read another one, which is not from our organization. Neil Yu is a strategist who works for a non-profit organization in Vancouver. He said, Jesus was a radical social activist who died fighting for justice and the common good. So let's try to get a picture of what was happening at that sermon. Brandon Ambrosi is a writer for the Washington Post. He, he's talking about this sermon. He says, Jesus, radical politics. Terry Ingleton is a professor of culture theory at the University of Manchester. He, when, he's, when they ask what you think about Jesus' first sermon, he said, Jesus Christ, he was revolutionary. What he presented in the Beatitudes was something completely out of everybody's expectation, everybody's So we hear revolutionary, we radical, so let's see what the dictionary describes what is radical. A radical is an advocating or based on throughout a complete political or social change. It's someone that brings something that completely change. Representing or supporting an extreme or progressive section of a political party. All the synonymous that we have revolutionary, progressive, reformist, revisionist, and progressive. What about revolutionary? How do you describe revolutionary according, according to the dictionary? The dictionary says uh, synonymous is, um, is a complete, total, absolute, utter, comprehensive, sweeping, far-reaching, extensive, profound. Also, it talks about revolutionary is a noun. It means a person who works for or engages in political revolution. What is a revolution? What is a revolution? Could be fighting or talking. It doesn't have to be necessarily fighting. But a revolution is something major, something that will change the timeline of history. And that's how people describing Jesus' first sermon was. He was a revolutionary. He was 
the way he presented or what he presented was so up there that really categorized him as a revolutionist, the radical. Do you think that those terms are too harsh or too strong for Jesus? What do you think? Do you think that Jesus was a radical revolutionist? Let's read what Helen G. White says about him in regard to this sermon. I'm reading in Mount of Blessings, uh, paragraph, page 147, paragraph 1. His work has struck at the very root of the former ideas and opinions. To obey his teachings would require a change of all to follow Christ in those days, it was to get rid of all, everything, everything that they have known we were here. all their life, everything. It would bring, it would bring them in direct coalition with the religious teachers, for it would involve the overthrow of the whole structure, which for generations, rabbis Should I do it for her? I mean, when I used to read the Beatitudes, I thought, oh, it's a big deal. It was a huge deal in those days. I mean, it was huge. So those 20 years that Jesus Christ spent mm. preparing for this moment. Switch over to the other side. He was, he was huge. He was, he, it's, like, it's like an atomic bomb falling. Mm. And I just want to review Which one? the first bomb Any. that he Any sent out. Switch it out. I mean, talking about let's begin the revolution. The first bomb he said, just stood there and said, Blessed are the pure in spirit for the kingdom of heaven. That's it, that's it, that's it. That's it. Oh. Do you know why this was an atomic bomb? Any idea why? I mean, it doesn't sound that big. But that was a huge statement that he Is made for Jews in those days. Imagine. For a Jew in those days, they were imprinted in their mind, and they were 100% convinced that just because they were born Jews, they were recommending to God. Just because they were Jews, they were recommended to God. If you were a healthy Jew, you were double recommended to God. And if you were a healthy, rich Jew, you will triple recommended. And now this is coming to tell me, it doesn't matter if you're rich or healthy. It doesn't matter where you're born, what, how much health you have. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are, what you have. If you are poor in spirit, the kingdom is yours. I can keep in track with her. Okay. That was a bombshell. I mean, talking talking about a bombshell. I mean, that thing went destroying to the root of every 
Thank you. 